my name is Dave Taylor. I'm the founder and director of Peace Talks. Uh, for those that don't know already, Peace in Peace Talks stands for Political, Ethical, Artistic and Cultural Engagement. Um, and we are a ministry of St George's Anglican Church here in Paddington. And we seek to serve our city by providing a context in which to explore the deep and pressing matters of our day, amongst other things. And matters do not get much more pressing and deep as the triad of gender, power and violence, topics which we are blessed to have such a wonderful group of women uh, to help us explore tonight. Before I introduce our panel um, and MC for this evening, I'd like to draw your attention to a flyer that you might have got on the way in. There's also some at the back, um, which has some information for you about where you can uh, find out about peace on social medias. That's almost an oxymoron, I think. Um, as well as uh, information about a website where you can find uh, recordings of previous talks, as well as information about a monthly podcast that I um, do with, with uh, my co-host Joel, who's over there, um, and information about an upcoming event that we have. Our next uh, month's event is going to be slightly different. Uh, we're hosting an open mic night for writers, people who are interested in writing, whether this is uh, as a matter of being an amateur um, or whether you're more professional. We're wanting to uh, create a space where people can come over dinner and wine to share something with us that they're working on at the moment, whether it's a poem or a piece of an essay or some prose or something like that. And that's part of our plan this year to kind of transform peace into being less of a monthly event and more of a community um, joined together by a mutual kind of love of the life of the mind and in enjoyment of culture generally. So uh, keep that in your diary. Now, if you uh, and finally, perhaps very importantly, at the back of the uh, courtyard outside, you'll find some bathrooms as well. There is obviously been wine um, had as well, so it's <laughs> important. Um, without further ado, let me introduce from the bathroom to the paddle. I don't know that that's your point. <laughs> but without further ado, let me introduce our panel uh, for this evening. Um, starting us off uh, with a bit of a presentation. Uh, is Emma Pittman, who is a writer from Sydney. Uh, she writes about gender and culture, and her work has appeared in The Lifted Brow and in UTS's Writers' Anthology, as well as uh, Mean Gin Quarterly. Um, joining us on our pa panel as well is Erica Hammonds, uh, who is an Associate Minister at St Barnabas Broadway. Um, she is also part of the Domestic Violence Justice Team at, at Common Grace, which has a very strong relationship to the church that you're in. Um, also on the panel is uh, Kylie Maddox-Pigeon, who is a psychologist whose client demographic includes perpetrators and survivors of uh, family violence. And Kylie is also, which I didn't realise, a graduate of SNBC. I didn't know that about you. <laughs> um, and emceeing our panel this evening uh, and keeping the conversation happening is uh, Tanya Riches, who is a lecturer in theology at Hillsong College, as well as a musician, um, and most importantly, she is my boss at the Centre <laughs> <laughs> for Disability uh, Studies. Um, so we all have to be very nice to this evening. Uh, as I said, we'll begin our time together by hearing a short presentation from Emma, um, followed by a public conversation between our MC and panellists, uh, facilitated by Tanya. Uh, then um, uh, we'll open it up for uh, questions from the floor. 
uh, during which time I'd ask that you keep your questions, if you have them, short um, and respectful, and most importantly, perhaps in the form of a question of some kind. So if, if, a, if a question mark doesn't go at the end. Um, uh, and that's it. Please uh, uh, make our uh, first guest, Emma, uh, welcome in the customary way. to events like this and a cognitive dissonance kind of takes place and you can lean in intellectually and be like, oh, wow, that's, that's really interesting. Like, not super relevant for me, but yeah, wow, really interesting. But I would just really encourage everyone to reconsider that posture and take all of this quite personally and think about how it affects us and people we care about every day. So yeah, please listen. <laughs> Um, so, I just wanted to talk, I mean, how do you talk about gender? It's a fairly substantial topic, um, but I just wanted to talk quickly through how I understand the power structure, how I think it's maintained, why it needs to change, and how we can do that. So just, you know, it's kind of an ambitious goal. <laughs> um, so the power structure is patriarchal. Um, which just means that power has historically been concentrated in the hands of a small group of predominantly white um, heterosexual men, um, which is, you know, that's has led to the deep entrenchment of social structures that are very good at serving their needs, but are maybe a little less gracious with the interests of others. Um, one way that we can understand, understand a patriarchal power structure is as a gendered economy where power is capital and men just have more of it. Privilege is patrimony, men inherit it. And, um, and essentially, like to be quite blunt, a patriarchal society is one where women's needs come second. Where women come second, their needs, opinions, desires, voices, pleasure and testimony come second. Um, and you can take this a bit further and understand it as a gendered economy where women are assumed to owe men, where women are assumed to owe men sex, attention, time, nurture, um, unpaid household labour, and women are also not entitled to these things from men. 
So they might get them, but they're not entitled to them in the same way. Um, and the third premise is that women are also not supposed to take masculine-coded perks and privileges, so power, prominence, the illusion of being the objective <laughs> voice of reason on an issue. Um, and if that sounds a little Victorian marriage to you, um, consider how women have been taught to weather abuse, to absorb the blame for sexual misconduct, to give men the benefit of the doubt, not create a fuss, be grateful for all forms of male attention, interpret harassment as a compliment, put a man's reputation first, and how girls learn as soon as they're about 13 how to talk themselves out of dangerous situations, how to, how to appease men, honestly. Um, we teach girls that they're responsible for how men treat them. And I can't speak for all women, but I know that I certainly learned about my own sexuality as a commodity that I was responsible for either guarding from men or in a Christian context protecting men from for their benefit or one day to give to a man. But I wasn't the prime stakeholder in, in that part of me. Um, and so girls learn about themselves as objects of desire before they're subjects of desire, subjects with desire. And even that is an incredibly confusing journey because female sexuality is still shrouded in so much shame. So if this is the power structure, and it's, uh, there's obviously a lot more nuance that I can't completely do justice to, but it makes sense that there are male and female roles that are designed to sustain this. And so I would argue that sexism is the ideology that's evolved to support these structures. Sexism is the framework that justifies patriarchal social relations. Sexism says men just are this way and women just are this way and it works and it's good and it makes sense. It works by conflating the interests and perspective of the dominant party with common sense and it's very successful. Um, and you see this with any, you see this in any power structure where where we define everyone by their difference from this dominant group. So when you come to a night about gender, power, and violence, we think it's a night about women. We think it's a night about women's issues. Um, and when you hear the word race, you think of someone who's not white. When you hear orientation, you think about someone who's not heterosexual. We define people by their difference from this dominant group. And a consequence that Mullenbach calls that process um, ex-nomination, and, and a consequence of that, that conflation of the dominant group's ideology or interests with common sense is that, yeah, white, white, straight white men have become the neutral identity, this illusion of a neutral identity that we measure everyone else against. But the, the, the invisibility of the male gender and its dominant subjectivity can make um, it seem invisible. And historically, it, ha it has, while being so incredibly prominent, it's also been able to go largely 
unexamined and the idea still persists that men just are men are just the natural state of things everything else is a departure from that so the idea lingers that femininity is somehow more performed than masculinity um, and I think we're finally coming to a time in history where we're realizing that we really urgently need to discuss our construction of masculinity and the impact that it has on women and also on men. So, yeah, and with the, ri with the rise of feminism and the civil rights movement, suddenly straight white men acquired this visible identity and I imagine it was very uncomfortable and they start started to feel a little bit othered um, and it's exciting like when you talk to someone who has done that has kind of had that realization of their position in this structure in this place in this pyramid of power and they've been able to self-reflect um, and I know a lot of really wonderful men who who can do that some not so much and I think yeah I think that we're moving in a really exciting place so sexism says women are emotional and men are just logical sexism says men are just natural leaders and it just makes sense for them to be in control of most things except their sexual impulses they shouldn't be expected to control those or held accountable when they don't sexism pretends that abuse and harassment is about attraction when it's about power and entitlement sexism tells young boys that they're weak if they display emotion Sexism ensures that boys grow up without the freedom to express the full spectrum of human feeling. So we can go on saying, see, boys just aren't emotional. We roll our eyes and indulge bad behavior and say, boys will be boys. So we can go on saying, men just can't help themselves. It's just locker room talk. Or one of Donald Trump's most chilling tweets, 26,000 unreported sexual assaults in the military, only 238 convictions. What did these geniuses expect when they put men and women together? Many things that signal emotional maturity in children, in my incredibly rich and nuanced understanding of child psychology, <laughs> um, <laughs> are labored intensively to girls. Things like sensitivity, empathy, choosing self-control over aggression, and at worst, they're actively discouraged in little boys. Um, Bell Hooks says that the first act of violence that patriarchy demands of males is not violence towards women. Instead, patriarchy demands that all males engage in acts of psychic self-mutilation, that they kill off the emotional part of themselves. If an individual is not successful in emotionally crippling himself, he can count on patriarchal men to enact rituals of power that will assault his self-esteem. We encourage girls to resolve things with talking, and sharing their feelings, but we don't equip boys to do the same. We've been, we've been content with letting boys use their fists to express emotion, and we wonder why there are so many lonely, depressed, violent men who don't know how to meaningfully connect with others. We wonder why 90% of violent crime is committed by men, and why men are three times more likely to commit suicide. We prime children to grow up and fill the roles that we've declared inevitable. Basically, when, pat when patriarchy has had the monopoly on defining masculinity, when it's been able to conflate masculinity with power and dominance, 
and it's been able to conceal its very vested interest in doing so behind various smoke screens. It sets boys up to fail in a world where the central project post-enlightenment is equality. In a world that's moving towards equality, when boys are taught that masculinity means dominance and inflexibility and invulnerability, they're not set up, they're not being set up to thrive in the world. More on, more on that later. <laughs> when you're in the position of power, you can choose to listen to those below you, or you can choose not to. And the fact that a choice exists is at the very heart of privilege. The option to disengage belongs only to the powerful. You can listen to others detail their suffering and consider it. You can ask them to go away and bring you evidence. When they come back with evidence, you can hypothesize that perhaps it's due to something else. Perhaps it didn't happen exactly the way they said it happened. Perhaps it was because of this. You can wonder if now they perhaps have a bit of a victim mentality. You can invoke the great capitalist mythology of meritocracy here. You could even concede that you agree with some of their points, but you find their tone alienating. You want to take their opinions seriously, but you wonder if fear and anger are overtaking reason at this point. You want to have a reasonable conversation, and you use the word reasonable with nary a hint of irony, totally unaware that objectivity as you know it is just your tribe's subjectivity. They can even conform to your terms of expression, peaceful protests, long and thoughtful think pieces. They can respectfully indulge your devil's advocacy, very gently challenge your false equivalences, participate in a delusion that you come to the table with equal wealth of experiential knowledge on the subject. But ultimately, you can still move the goalpost because you own the field. You can give them a microphone, but you still own the stage. Your inclusion is unconditional. Your inclusion in the world is unconditional, so you can set the conditions of inclusion for others. <coughs> when a woman fails, how easily do we attribute that failure to gender? When a man fails, he was just, he was just a bad egg. It was just like, wow, what a wild card. That's why it's taken decades for the conversation to get here. Why domestic violence statistics are through the roof why mass shootings are through the roof, why male suicide is through the roof. And the common denominator is masculinity and how we understand it and how it's been conceptualized. So the, patri the, <laughs> the power structure is patriarchal. The ideology that supports it is sexism. And the law enforcement branch, I would argue, is misogyny. Misogyny is what happens when, when there's a threat of that system going away. Misogyny is about control. It's about letting people know that, no, they can't go where they want to go. No, they're not entitled to be there. No, sit down. No, go home. No, you're not safe here. That's why I think it's so important that this night is called gender, power, and violence, because, yeah, it's all about power. And in a system that's structured unequally, until the system changes, that violence and that 
abuse isn't going to go away. And so we need to change the system. You know, like, like it's not a big deal or anything, but, <laughs> but I think we can. I feel good about tonight. Um, <laughs> so it's pretty clear that a patriarchal structure isn't very good for women. But part of its success has been because it's been very good at convincing boys and men that it's either A, good for them, or B, the only option. Um, I don't know how to be particularly eloquent about this, but it's just so obviously not. Um, I don't know if you guys have read much about incels and the incel movement. Um, basically, I won't go into it because it's, it's pretty horrifying, but basically it's a um, group of very angry young men who feel in, oh, hello, who um, feel entitled to sex from women um, more than normal, more than they are enraged that they're being denying, denied this thing to which they never had a right. Um, and I just think it's so fascinating because they come together in this online space and say the most horrendous things and end up doing horrendous things. Like, um, there's been one of the mass, shoot, one of the mass shootings um, in America in 2014 was by a guy called Elliot Rogers who went on a rampage um, killing sorority women who wouldn't sleep with him um, and also men of colour who he perceived to be um, unfairly sexually successful. Um, so incels hate anyone who's sexually successful. Um, but instead of coming together to affirm one another's value to talk about the shame, to talk about the loneliness, to process the ob obvious self-loathing that's going on. They get together to hate other people and externalise because that's what happens when you haven't been equipped to deal with... That's what happens when when patriarchy has promised, has made you false promises. Like, and you look, at, you look at these guys and you think, take it up with the people who taught you that it was reasonable to expect this from women. Like, take it up with the people who lied to you. It's not, this isn't on women. <laughs> like, so many, so many things, I think, that, um, yeah, so much that gets laid at the feet of women is the fault of patriarchy and it just, I just think that it's really sad and really broken um, and the damage, the damage that it does to men is so normalised that we're barely, we barely conceive of it as damage, it's just the way things are um, and I don't think that it has to be. I think there's more. I think there's better. Um, and none of this is to say that men aren't responsible for their behaviour. Um, and I think part of what's been really powerful about the last um, year or so has been that m men are finally being held accountable. Um, but in order to truly move forward, it's not about 
It's not about these individual men. Um, it's actually about all of us and where we sit in this structure, in this pyramid. Um, so this is where my notes have run out and I realised that I mentioned that um, I wanted to say how we can fix it. <laughs> so I'm just going to fly. Just going to go a little off the cuff, so just <laughs> come along. Um, I think that, yeah, it's quite obvious that um, the traditional model of masculinity, it's, it's time is up. You know, there's some good things about it. It's not unhealthy to want to be strong, but it is unhealthy if that looks like domination. Um, it's not unhealthy to want to be strong if our definition of strength includes vulnerability, which is the ultimate strength in many ways. Um, so I think just a couple of quick, <laughs> couple of quick things um, is that we need to work on elevating a much more expansive version of masculinity, one where people can be anything. And I think that is happening and I see it, I see it in people around me. I, I see it all the time, but it's still, it's not the dominant narrative. It's not, it's not the prevailing vision of what masculinity looks like. And maybe it takes time, but maybe it takes all of us enacting that in our everyday. Um, it can be hard. It can be hard for men to, A, even recognise their position in this structure and then it can be very hard to challenge it. But I've written about recently the idea of misogyny as a human pyramid that is supported by an enormously expansive, very stable base of people who are ignorant, who maybe politics has never felt personal for them, so they've never had to care about things or just people who don't stand up, people who are complicit. And I think it's, it's kind of a confronting thing to say, like, oh, you're all a part of it. But it's also really exciting <laughs> because it means that everyone can affect, and this is very be the change you want to see in the world. I realise that but also be the change that you want to see. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm not really sure how to wrap it up. Um, so I might just leave it there. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Emma, for such a um, powerful message. Please uh, welcome to the front our panel for this evening.
think that was amazing. I just yeah. want to say thank you because I actually did think we were going to be talking largely about women. And I get a little bit sick of going out on special nights of the week to go talk about being a woman. <laughs> so I think perhaps um, <laughs> it's fantastic to um, hear a little bit about masculinity um, and to perhaps gather around that and the ways um, that that can and um, perhaps is, is operating and perhaps could be improved. Um, so I know I'm just going to ask that a couple of questions to you, Emma, and then we will move along um, and introduce you to the other, um, introduce everybody to the other panel members. But uh, you talked a little bit about um, this human pyramid and that we're all a part of it, and I think um, I think there is, you know, a sense of resonance. Everybody does understand that we are, um, you know, leaning in and creating these systems, and even when you don't want to, sometimes you're a part of the inevitable. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess um, maybe for those of us who maybe resist that a little bit, um, when we say that, when you say that the harassment of women is communal, can you maybe explain that a little bit more um, and maybe some examples of how perhaps to get our heads around that? Sure. Um, <coughs> I, think, I think that works on two levels. So, um, when I say that um, the harassment of women is often communal, I mean that quite literally. Like I think most women in the room know what it's like to feel intimidated by more than one man. Um, <coughs> and certainly times in my life where I felt the most, um, I, I guess I'll just, I'll just share an example um, just very quickly. So going through airport security, um, see these two guards sort of laughing at me as I go through and I'm like, oh, do I have Vegemite in my teeth? Like, what, what is so funny about me? And then um, they're like, oh, you've been, you've been randomly selected for a security check. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I, and I thought they were joking because of the way they were acting. I was like, oh, okay, this is, I hate laughing at your joke, but you're a security guard, so I will. Um, and they were like, yeah, they, they continued to laugh. And he walked me up to the end of the conveyor belt and like, and I understand that random security checks happen. I'm not saying anything against airport security, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but it just was off and got me to put my leg up on a crate. There's people walking past and he like frisked me up and down with this baton. Um, and was like, oh, how are you? And kept looking at his friend. I kept looking at his friend behind him. Um, and he was like, oh, just saying stuff to me. And it was like, oh, how are you, how you going today? And I was like, yeah, good. Not, <laughs> yeah, not, not super impressed. Much better beforehand. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is a real stain. Um, yeah, and then... And then as he like had the stick going up between my legs, he was like, yeah, you look good. And he just, he kept looking at his friends. And I was like, oh, this is what you have. This is how you guys connect. You bond over denigrating women. And that's really gross, but also that's so sad. Mm. Like that's, that's all you have. That's, that's how you know how to connect. Um, and so much of harassment feels 
performative in that way. So much of it is like signaling, signaling to other men. Um, so I mean that. And I also mean it's communal figuratively because I feel like I feel like when you're harassed by one man, there's a whole structure behind it that makes it feel really difficult to stand up to that one man. Or when you've been in a situation and there's other men who are just watching and it's just kind of like, where are you? Like, where, where are you on this? And so, yeah, when we talk about a patriarchal power structure, men who abuse that power are doing so within that safe space. And things are getting a lot better now. People, it's even been a battle to have harassment called what it is. It's even been a battle to have that acknowledged. And, you know, I can tell the difference between flirting and harassment, you know? And so much of the discourse around, like, oh, you can't even flirt with, it's like, no, I'm sorry, I can tell the difference. Like, if I feel threatened, if I'm alone on a street, that's not flirting. That's making me feel uncomfortable in a public space where I have every right to feel comfortable. And so, yeah, I mean it quite literally and I mean it figuratively. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm. Um, and you've also kind of looked at, you see it as hopeful as well. Making mm. this metaphor is, it's, you know, it's damning in that we're all implicated, but then it's also hopeful because there's potentially something that can be done. Um, and you, you said this in, in your mansion piece, what if we encourage boys to be empathetic and raise them to be strong enough to absorb the consequences and use their social privilege in service of others. And yeah, I guess I just wondered, can you put a little picture around what the hope is? Um, why is it that you're excited um, as well as the... Um, yeah, I feel genuinely excited when I have conversations with male friends who, um, who you've had a conversation with in the past and they go away and they think about it and they, they come back to you and they're like, oh, I noticed this because, because I saw this happen to you or I heard you say this, now I make sure I did this. Yeah. And I think that um, as we move forward, there are so many men, and so many men undoubtedly in this room who, who want to think critically about these things and I bank on that, and I feel, I, I feel genuinely hopeful about it because I think everyone needs to learn. We need everyone lead, needs to learn that norms are not just—they didn't just happen. They're not just the way they are. Like everyone has, there's an agenda. And I often think about. Now I'm just kind of waffling, but um, I often think about that verse that's like, "Take every thought captive." And do that critically. Every time, every time you make an assumption, every time you make an assumption about yourself or about another person, take that thought captive and sit it down and be like, who do you work for? Who do you serve? Like, because until we interrogate ourselves, we're not, yeah, we're not going to be able to move forward. And also that scripture of... Um, 
take the, the log out of your own eye before, you, before you'll even see clearly the speck in your brother's eye. And I think that with, when there's so much public discourse around individual men, it's really easy to be like, oh, they're, yep, yep, oh, yep, yeah, he's the bad one. And, mm -hmm. and it's not to say that, that we have to like feel the same about ourselves as we would someone like that, but yeah, what can we do every day? What can we, how can we think critically? How can we call people out when we see things that aren't okay? How can we put ourselves on the line in service of people who aren't as able to do so for whatever reason? Mm -hmm. um, and I feel hopeful because I know people who do this um, and I feel confident that the conversations that we're having now will bear fruit in the future and how we raise future generations. <laughs> yeah. yeah, awesome. So, Erica, uh, you, I feel it's a bit strange having, but you know, it's all right, it's what happens when you've got a horseshoe on <laughs> church. Um, so, you have called this the reckoning. We were kind of talking about it over dinner. Mm. Um, and yeah, I guess, can you just explain to us, I guess, what is the reckoning that you're seeing, um, but particularly in the church space? So these things are happening in the world, but you know, what are you seeing in regards to the church and the observations that you are observing in the church um, and the reckoning of what is of those things within mm. the church? Um, I think partly what I mean by the reckoning is that it feels very much like a time has come and that there is a kind of a shifting of paradigms or at least we're recognising we're recognizing a paradigm that we thought was a norm and we're recognising that actually has a narrative behind it that can be changed. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in particular you can see that with Time's Up and Me Too and all of those sorts of things, but those voices have been in the church and are now being lifted up by that as well. Mm. Um, I think I often sit in small rooms with women who have felt and are um, disenfranchised within their churches and we share the same stories and we kind of lift each other up in those things. Um, but we're doing that because we don't have space in the actual formal structures of the church. We have to ghettoise. We have to go underground to find mm. that kind of space. But we're finding that so many of those voices are finding each other mm. that it's like a what I used to think about change, and I still sort of I still believe it's true that lots of change has to come from the top down. That particularly in a church world, those structures are so entrenched, the powers are so powerful that they have to start to recognise the change and kind of um, move it down. But you've also got this bottom-up effect, and what we've seen with I think Me Too is that when you've got enough voices there, it's like a floodgates thing that says stuff that's kind of chipping away of the structure, actually mm -hmm. we're going to flood it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I, like you can talk about that in a really kind of naive, optimistic way, like we've flooded it and now it's changed, which we know isn't true. Mm -hmm. um, but at the very least, we kind of flood in a way that says look differently. Um, <coughs> and I think particularly Emma put a finger on it oh, in so many ways <laughs> when she spoke tonight, but, um, just that sense that men uh, now, they have a frame with which to see themselves that isn't just norm. Mm -hmm. What I'm concerned about is that they're using that to claim and use the language of victimhood mm -hmm. um, at the very same time that women, mm -hmm. women's victimhood is finally being recognised. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are competing victimhoods that I think um, mm. we have 
Yes. Yeah, I think there's something enormously problematic mm. about that dynamic mm -hmm. and I'm concerned about the ways that that's taken hold and you can see that in the incel movement. Mm. But um, what we're seeing in the church at the very least is that the church has, I keep saying we've kind of gone from a, a period of like unconscious incompetence in regards to gender inequality. <laughs> we're still largely in unconscious incompetence, <laughs> yeah. but there's just like slightly more consciousness about it. <laughs> and so I feel hopeful about that because that is at least, that's the foundation yeah. for change. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So you talked about, um, you know, I guess some of the backlash, I guess, or perhaps some of the things that are occurring in response. But I think it does beg the question, you know, so when we think about church, we like to think of that being a safe place. Yeah. Uh, you've gone out of, you know, you've kind of come out and said, perhaps we should think safer. Yeah. Uh, and so I guess I'm just wondering, can you kind of explain what is safer and, um, and why, yeah, why would we want to work towards that and what does that mean? Yeah, so I pick the word safer because it's sort of like a relative thing, whereas safe is an absolute, it's a mm -hmm. status attained. And uh, mm. because I, I work in domestic and family violence alongside my work in the church, people often come to me and their question is, is this church safe or mm -hmm. um, how can we make our church safe? And what I think is underlying that question is a sense that um, safety is something that you can achieve and you can just let it be. Um, mm. Whereas, and it's a, quite a simple assumption about what safety looks like. Whereas my experience in the church is that I work alongside people who love the fact that I preach, mm. but also talk over me in meetings. Right. Um, <laughs> and so there's a dynamism and there. To you, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a dynamism and an inconsistency <laughs> on mm. every level amongst people I love and who I know love me. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that includes the experiences of victims in the church where someone will say, isn't it horrible that people do this? Mm. And then when someone actually discloses their experience of that, might say to them, I'm so glad it wasn't as bad as this other person's experience, mm -hmm. totally dismissing mm. theirs. Mm. Um, and so I prefer the term safer because it kind of demonstrates that safety is a dynamic thing. Mm. And in particular, what I feel like is because of the dynamic of domestic and family violence, um, an abuser will use anything as a tool, mm. um, but mostly they'll use their power and they'll use the relative vulnerability of something else, mm. the person and the system within, they, within which they operate. Um, and so they'll use something that could be beautiful, it's similar to what you're talking about, something like community, which could be a really beautiful thing, but they'll yeah. twist that community so that the community isolates that person. Yeah. Or they'll use theology, which in my view is the most beautiful thing possible, mm -hmm. um, but they can turn that theology into a poison or a weapon. Um, and so we can't say, we, maybe we can create the circumstances in which we eradicate all the possible weapons here, because mm. that's not possible. Mm. Mm. What, it, what is possible is a, a status, I guess a status of vigilance mm. and awareness that says all of these things could be turned. Do we know, do we have the mechanisms that can point out to us when they are? Mm -hmm. um, and are we all on that job? Yeah. We all consider ourselves responsible for, for creating that environment. For keeping <coughs> and, yeah, for being vigilant. Yeah. I love that. Uh, so you said something that, because, you know, it has to turn to scripture. <laughs> um, it's important for us, for Pentecostal to do that in an Anglican church. <laughs> so, <laughs> just noting that. Uh, so, so um, I think, 
Um, there's a, a quote that you used in, um, I think the Safer, I don't know which article I read of yours, it was fantastic. <coughs> One of the ones that's available on Common Grace. The Marks. The Marks Review. Theological yeah, Review. Um, yep. Theological Review. Um, you, you said this, scripture can be used to bring comfort and clarity to people who've experienced violence and conviction to people who've perpetrated it. But it can also be wielded by abusers and those who collude with them to oppress victims. Our communal life can be a source of support for people who've experienced violence, acting as a healthy model of relationships. It can be also used to isolate and shame those targeted. So you used also a metaphor um, in terms of complementarianism, um, which I thought we also should probably bring up tonight, <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, which has been at times seen as a, um, quite a neutral object. Um, the metaphor was of a spoon. Uh, so you, you, know, you use the spoon. Uh, you pointed out that egalitarians have perhaps suggested that complementarianism is in fact a dagger. Um, but instead, you've suggested that we talk about complementarianism as a butter knife. And so I wondered if you could explain yeah. that. There's a lot of yeah. utensils going on yeah. that you think people might need. Yeah, you I'm to. sure that's immediately <laughs> obvious to everyone listening. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just keep thinking of The Simpsons, like, you yeah. want to play Nazi food. Yeah, I feel a bit um, like that. Like, <laughs> okay. yeah. um, Maybe you can enlighten everyone yeah, as okay. to why you've used those um, yeah. utensils. I guess it's because um, I've participated in both contexts and I think often we talk across purposes and that means that um, we're kind of missing each other's targets a little bit and, and also not really, um, we don't get anywhere if we don't understand the, the frame within which someone's thinking about their own theology. Um, and so I, I hear and I know of and love complementarians for whom their doctrine is a good one and has nothing that could ever be considered a weapon within it. Um, and so for them, it's the spoon. You know, you can only use that for, I mean, someone could sharpen it into a shiv, but you have to so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you have to so bend it out of its natural shape in order to use it for that, that it could no longer be called a spoon, basically. It can't any longer be called complementarianism. And I think that's kind of like the primary paradigm that many of my good yeah. friends who are complementarians would think about their doctrine within. Um, but then many of my egalitarian friends would say, no, 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 it's inherently abusive. There's no way that you, philosophically and theologically, there's no way that you can conceive of um, kind of functional inequality and ontological equality at the same time. Um, you can't have a hierarchical system within the church or in a marriage that doesn't inherently lend itself to abuse. It's abusive in, it's in itself. Mm -hmm. And so I'm posing this idea that um, a butter knife kind of maybe represents the fact that in its shape, it is at least amenable to being used for violence that there's some sense of vulnerability within the doctrine itself. And I have some complementarian friends who agree with me on that. Um, there's some inherent vulnerability to that, which is open to exploitation. And maybe if we're able to kind of frame it in those terms, we open up the possibility that we're not, um, we don't have to completely eschew um, doctrinal con convictions that some people hold really dearly mm. and with full conviction. Um, but we're opening up the other question, which is, okay, can we see the ways in which it is being used like that? Mm -hmm. um, and then if, if we can say it's vulnerable to being used that way, um, maybe it is that we can find the resources to protect mm. against that. Yeah. Mm. So 
So Kylie, I know that you um, kind of, we, we talked about this again over dinner and I <laughs> kind of felt like at this, at this point it would be worth bringing your voice into the mix. Um, Can I give my time to those two? Yeah, <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> no, but I think this is a great time to interject. I mean, we've got, definitely got mm. some other questions that we'd love to ask you in terms of your um, counselling and um, your work with women who have gone through um, domestic and family violence. But in terms of complementarianism, this idea that, you know, you can, um, you know, you're equal, equal not the same, um, different roles, uh, you you kind of have felt perhaps that it is, maybe the butter knife is a bit too soft, <laughs> if I can paraphrase. Do you want to take it from there? We're going to solve this by nine? Yeah, um, nine, we'll be done. <coughs> Misogyny, done. <laughs> so I think the church is too prone to dismiss evidence, and we think that theology is enough. Um, I think... I think both complementarian and, complementarian and egalitarian theologies are both biblically credible. One of them's obviously more risky, and I don't think complementarian, complementarianism, we need a new word, is dangerous, but I think it's, it's looking at the, the line of danger. It's so far down the risk spectru spectrum. So the social sciences, and I'm thinking particularly of uh, Iris Bonnet's work, B-O-H-N-E-T, she's a professor at Harvard. Uh, she talks about unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. So we're all built with bias. When our brain is wired so that when we see things, our brain only notices what's novel. Mm. And then once what's novel becomes normal, we habituate and then we don't notice it anymore. It's like when you walk into a room and you only see what's different or you only see the spider on the wall because mm. you know everything else that's there. You only notice what's different, right? So we're, we're, we're meant to do that. We're meant to notice what's different. Um, those biases are built in. They're good things. They, we need to be aware of them when it comes to things as important as women or, or, or anybody who's not um, the majority or the kind of core group. Oh, I get so angry, this is really hard to talk about. <laughs> <coughs> so Iris Bonnet says that you, you, we're biased towards men. We think that men are more competent, more capable because that's what we've seen all the time, right? Um, you can overcome that bias, but you need to design it. You can't just say, well, women and men are equal, done. Because we don't believe that. We don't think that women and men are equal. Mm -hmm. So you imagine looking at a boardroom of Aboriginal women with disabilities. Picture that boardroom, right? Tell me you don't think that that's a less capable board than a, than a board of white men in suits, right? We don't want to believe that, but we do. We have to design ourselves to overcome that bias. So I think the risk with complementarianism is that when men are up the front making decisions, preaching, leading, teaching, you're growing unconscious bias in everybody that sees that. Mm. Here's the kicker for churches. That bias still functions even when the intent is loving kindness. Mm -hmm even when the intent is sacrificial service. Yeah. That doesn't overcome the bias. It goes mm. this far towards overcoming it, but... Right. 
So to say that male headship is to be done in loving kindness, that's a lovely theology. Actually, it doesn't work out like that. Mm. Like it's not true mm. to say that male headship done with loving kindness means that we're all equal. It's not true. Like, that's wouldn't that be lovely? But the social sciences tell us that actually we're lying to ourselves and we need to be people of truth. Mm. So I think complementarianism can be credible. No one that I have ever seen has done the work to design enough systems to overcome the bias, to genuinely believe that mm. women are equal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that, oh sorry. No, no. I think that plays <laughs> into what we're talking about. Sorry, <laughs> about the kind of the broader structures yeah. within which we're, we're operating. Right. That you can't hermetically seal off a community. Right, or a marriage. Or a marriage. And um, when we're dealing with things of such nuance as something like ontological equality, functional difference, a submission that, um, is mostly inchoate in nature, but a headship which is fairly well-defined. Um, to live out that nuance is actually enormously difficult. And I know many complementarians would acknowledge the, the difficulty of that, or at least the nuance yeah, of that. But, yeah. Yeah, but leaping from page to person mm. and to a dynamic that is uh, always moving because people are, living is movement. <laughs> um, wow, that feels so spoken word, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm come to the next event. Proud of you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what I notice when I, when I observe how people talk about these doctrines mm -hmm. is that we move in very quickly from the words the Bible actually uses mm -hmm. to similes which the Bible doesn't. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we're talking mm -hmm. about leadership or initiative or we're decision talking making, about decision yeah. making. None of those are in the key text, yeah. not a single one of them. And yet mm -hmm. they're the things that our mind most mm -hmm. closely attaches mm -hmm. to things. Mm -hmm. And what I think that reveals is that mm -hmm. Um, although I think I agree with Kylie, it's, it's theological po theologically possible, I think it's even practically possible. Mm. On the ground level, most people's understanding mm. and most people's practice isn't able to live that out. Mm -hmm. And that's partly because they're being constrained by a society mm -hmm. and a church culture. Mm that is built around the unconscious bias, right. the patriarchy and the sexism. But, I mean, also as a missiologist, you know, the word submission in our context, in, in our, you know, in our current, you know, day and age, um, it doesn't necessarily have, yeah. <laughs> you know, ways that you can do that yeah. and really see the things that we're talking about loving, um, you know, necessarily connect yeah. for the ordinary person. The word yeah. submission, you know, um, doesn't necessarily communicate that immediately. Yeah. Um, definitely has connotations. <laughs> I, so you, um, you also talked about, um, and I think this is a really important part of it, uh, power blindness, mm -hmm. and that power blindness leads to abuse blindness. And I just wondered, if, could you give a little bit more detail to that equation? Yeah, so I was thinking about this a little bit more today, that um, to know how power works in a system, you actually have to know, one, what power is, and I think churches are pretty co confused about what power is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but also you need to know what the system is, and I think, you know, um, at my church on Sunday we talked about the church being um, an organised organism, and there's a real complexity to that. I think that's, a, that's not a bad description in the sense that churches have structures. Mm. Um, we don't just all meet in a room. Someone makes that happen and dictates how we meet and 
um, what we talk about and how we meet outside of that space and all of that. That's sort of like the organisation part of it. But we're also an organism. We use you know, language like family um, and fellowship and relationship. Um, but those are quite confusing paradigms to be working in. Mm -hmm. And so I think it makes it hard for us to recognise the ways that power plays out in that environment. So if we were just an organisation, you could say, well, there's our like chain of command or this is who you talk to mm -hmm. about this and that's, mm -hmm. that's it. Mm -hmm. But it's a much more complex thing than that. And so um, I think what that leads to is an inability to recognise the way power might be abused because we don't quite even know how power is used mm -hmm. <laughs> in church. Yeah. Um, and that mostly the people who ha are put in positions to um, work that out are the people who are the least capable of articulating mm -hmm. that um, because they are the holders of mm -hmm. power. So just to give an example, which is slightly tan tangential, but a few years ago I was part of a staff team that did one of those like team dynamics kind of surveys and it would tell you where you're working in your kind of area of strength or preference but also your adaptive working. And my boss at the time, his adaptive and preference um, were at the same point. He wasn't having to make any adaptations. <laughs> he was working in his area of preference the whole time. That's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, what a dream. Um, great guy, lovely guy, humble guy. But everyone else outside that mm. was working way outside of their preference to an ad adaptation, which was an adaptation around him. Mm. Um, and he was shocked by that. He <laughs> hadn't noted that. And why would he have? Because mm. the people who don't hold power are the ones who have to be conscious of how it's used because right. they're constantly mm. negotiating mm. it in mm. various ways. Mm. Um, and so without that kind of power awareness, when you think about something like domestic and family violence, at the heart of which is the abuse of power, yeah. Yeah. it's very hard unless we have some mechanisms to then work out how is power operating here to mm. work out how it's being abused. Mm -hmm. And so one of the um, amazing resources is a list of questions that you've generated to help us to really start to become aware um, of how, you know, how power is working in a room. Um, so I think that, is that on the Coleman Grace website? Is uh, it's in the article that the article. I put up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The article, and so I'm sure, yeah. And it's on the Common Grace website, actually. Well, on the Common Grace website. We Fantastic. turned that into a three blog post, so you can read that, yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to get to Kylie and ask you a question. Sorry, your time is now. <laughs> um, but I just wanted to, um, one of the really, really important things about tonight, one of the things that I thought would be incredibly terrible is if we didn't actually give people uh, the tools to be able to identify if perhaps they were in a situation um, mm -hmm. where things were, where the power was imbalanced and where they potentially were in, in a situation that was not... Um, good and where they were experiencing abuse. Mm. Um, and one of the things that, you know, going through all of this reading uh, has very com come to the fore is that women often think that things are normal. Um, it's just the, how, the way it is. Mm. It always mm. has been like that. Mm. Um, why would I start to ask questions about this now? And I, the thought of us not um, turning in and kind mm. of asking, um, you know, to reflect, I guess people to reflect on their own situations would be an incredibly missed opportunity in a place where mm -hmm. the police are responding to an incident of domestic violence every two minutes, as Julia Baird says. Mm. Um, and so I guess <coughs> as a, your, from your experience as a counsellor, I'd just love for you to maybe outline um, some of the ways to identify uh, abuse and just some of the red flags that I guess you would see and that you've grown used to kind of being able to pick. Mm. 
Oh, there'll be lots of wisdom in the room on this. Mm. So red flags that I would look for are uh, him talking over her, her looking at him before she answers, uh, him saying what she thinks, mm. him making decisions without consulting her, but her consulting him on every decision. Uh, this is a, I, I don't look for this in the counselling room, but this one's fascinating. So domestic violence um, places all the authority with him, but all the responsibility mm. with her. Mm. So he sits there and does nothing but calls mm. the shots and she mm. is responsible for everything. If anything mm. goes wrong, it's her fault. Think about who remembers the birthdays mm. in your family. And I, that's, not, that's not an act of violence to delegate that, but it's an interesting first step mm. because that says who is responsible for caring about other people mm. and whose mental load carries mm. everybody else. Mm. And it's, yeah, who, who, who organises the cards and, you know, it's mum, right? Like, most of the time it's mum. Now, that's not an act of violence, but... <laughs> it's the first step, right? Like it's her responsibility to care about everybody else and recognise yeah. everybody else's special occasions and Dad will show up to the party when she tells him it's time to leave. But actually she's carried all that. So I look for stuff like that. Who, who carries everything? Mm. Mm. And um, psychologically that can often manifest as trauma. The longer it goes on for, the mm. more mental load she carries, the more abuse she cops. So trauma just disorganises, really, like mm. um, can't think, you can't concentrate, you're in survival mode, you're hypervigilant, you can't really finish every, anything because your frontal lobe's not getting any blood, it's all up the back keeping you alive. Um, so I look for disorganisation too, I look for all the responsibility sitting with her but she's kind mm. of floundering and it's not because she's incompetent, it's because she's been given far more than she can bear and, it, and it's her fault if it goes wrong. Mm. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. disorganisation, I don't mean the papers are all over the study, I mean she kind of, you know that she's not doing what she's capable of. So that's the kind of thing I look for. And just as I say that, I just think of complementarian churches, she's not doing everything mm. she's capable of. She's not given the space to be all that she is. Yeah, she's not flourishing. Yeah, if someone's flourishing, I have zero concerns. If she can speak and sing and talk and do, I don't. I, sometimes I don't even have to see him, and I'm sure. Mm. So I'll say to emotional, verbal violence are the first two to start up. So if she feels bad and she gets told off all the time, um, physical, sexual violence is the last things to happen. Mm -hmm. So by the time you're getting shoved and poked and pushed, emotional, verbal is already there. Mm -hmm. I've never seen a case where it's not already there. Mm. Sometimes the first act of physical violence is murder, so mm. take emotional verbal violence seriously. Mm. 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 Well, I think that's a good segue to hand back to you, Dave, um, and to... <laughs> <laughs> no, not because you're emotionally or physically violent, but because I don't really know what to say right now, so I think it's a good moment to... <laughs> that's okay. Um, we're going to open up the questions. Um, I'm also going to send around an uh, email contact list. If you'd like to, to stay in contact with Peace Talks, uh, feel free to let it pass by. We'll just kind of pass around from the front. Imagine it's a collection plate and your contact details is your tithe. Um, <laughs> uh, so um, if, you'd, if you'd like to, um, otherwise feel free to let it pass by. Like a collection plate. Um, um, 
I've got a mic over here and Joel will have one. Clap your hand if you have a question. And uh, please remember to keep them short, um, respectful, um, and also a question would be great. Oh. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, right, okay. Cool. This one here. <laughs> oh, wait for the mic, please. Yeah, uh, wait. Oh, by the way, I forgot to say uh, we are recording, so uh, keep that in mind when you ask a question. This is for Kylie. Um, I heard in your intro that you also work with perps. Um, what are some red flags for men, perhaps, um, who might not know um, if they're abusive? Um, what would be some helpful things for them to do or look out for? If men are abusive but not aware, yeah. but are willing to learn about their abuse, uh, no, not a lot, because if they're willing to learn about their abuse, they're probably not abusive. Mm. Because it's the pride and the control and the narcissism that brings about the abuse, and pride, control and narcissism say, I don't have a problem, you're the problem. Mm. So if a man's willing to learn, you're halfway there. Mm. It's the men that say, I don't have a problem, she's the problem. Mm. Um, what's the question? What to look for in them? Yeah. That he can look for. Who remembers the birthdays? Um, if your child's crying, will you make an effort to go to them or will you just leave it for them to go to mum? Uh, I know the kids go to mum, but will you make an effort? Um, do you interrupt her when she speaks? Do you hold space for her to navigate what it's like to be a woman? Because it's harder. Um, do you defend her when she's harassed? Because when you're harassed on the street, you, you go into fight flight, right? So you, you, or freeze. So it's really hard to go, well, actually, I find your comment inappropriate because <laughs> blah, 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 blah. <laughs> like you're kind of just going, how do I get out? Or you, or you can't talk or you run away or whatever. Um, stand in front of her and call that action to account. Um, Stuff like that, mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. Hearing, hearing her, really. Do you ask her her opinion? Do you hold space for her to speak? Mm -hmm. Do you encourage her to flourish? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Other questions? Hey. Um, my question, I don't know who it's aimed at, but um, there's some companies like Commonwealth Bank who seem to be really like, like for tipping the scales to balance them out for like um, female and male equivalency in employment and, you know, fair, whatever. Um, is that kind of, um, which I think is a good thing, like go women, yay, but is that helpful to fast track that kind of progress? Is that helpful for men in, about, I don't know if I'm making sense, in balancing, I guess, in, in terms of employment? Is that helpful, yeah, for the men to, uh, I guess, in their eyes, lose out on opportunities to women who may not necessarily have the same skills as the men, but because the company wants to get that equality happening? It, um, I've, I don't know if anyone else wants to speak to this, but um, not that I consider myself an expert at all, but I've read some studies about um, how some of those actions affect women. 
what's really interesting is that most of the advice that we give to women um, of the kind of lean-in variety places the responsibility for their own equality on the women mm. and then the blame on the women for not being able to do that. There are structures like that, you know, um, affirmative action kinds of things that um, I think are kind of necessary steps, but it sounds like from the studies that I've read that um, their effectiveness is limited. Um, mentoring is an important kind of thing, like women having mentors in um, workplaces, also good, but actually the biggest factor that they've seen affecting women which cuts across all of those positive actions is the unconscious bias and the prevalence of that. Because what happens is, and I think you kind of acknowledge that in your question, um, when a woman comes into that position, if she's not viewed as having actually earned it, um, but the only merit that she brought with her was her ovaries, um, she's, she's discriminated against within that environment and she gets given even harsher um, kind of standards with mm. which to fight that system. So. Um, I th from what I can tell, those things are kind of helpful, necessary first steps, um, but actually the, the bigger, harder, but more um, significant project is uncovering and dealing with unconscious bias within those environments. Yeah. What I would really love to know is where you can be an incompetent woman <laughs> and get away yeah. with it. <laughs> because I, I don't know, I must be in all the circles <laughs> of the people who have to run three times as hard as their counterparts to maintain equivalence. So I guess maybe that sounds amazing. <coughs> I might try the Commonwealth Bank. <laughs> yeah. yeah, over here. Can I? Just, I think on that one, we just need every strategy. Yeah. Um, Australia has a pipeline problem too in terms of employing women in churches. There's loads of capable women out there, but if the connections just aren't made. She needs part-time because of childcare, or the church only wants this particular role. Um, more College and Christ College only have males ready for ministry, like, not only, majority males ready for ministry. Like, we just have to address it at every level. I'll go Sorry. to banking. <laughs> Great. Um, uh, I work with some very senior males and uh, for an organisation that works on gender equality, so working with those leading from the top. If you could get... Uh, every male leader in this country to do something different tomorrow, what would it be? Shut up. I think actually, like, um, I was reflecting on this um, an event last night, we were talking about what's going to make change, and I think ultimately what I would love to see is partnership between the genders. Um, I got so much nicer than mine. <laughs> 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 um, I got accused of wanting to be a female archbishop the other day because I was advocating for equality in the church and I was like, you do not know like, <laughs> how unappealing that sounds to me. But um, <laughs> I want partnership, but I think actually because we've had this system where men have held power, um, I think we probably do need at some point to have a radical reorientation of that. So I can't answer it for your context, but in the church, I would love to see women making decisions and men doing pastoral care. Mm. Um, just for a period, like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. when I thought of it, I thought, that's a brilliant idea that'll never happen. Mm. Um, but I think what happens is when you're doing the on-the-ground work, when you're mm. hearing stories, when you're actually taking the time to listen, your, your practices get mm. shaped around that. 
when you're up somewhere else making decisions, um, it takes so much struggle for those voices to get through to you mm. that by the time they do, they're diluted and mm. there's only one of them. Um, and I would love to see that flip so that men, whatever they're doing, are kind of doing the on-the-ground work that women tend to do um, and give women the freedom and the space to sit up in a comfy office for a little bit and make some of the key decisions about where things get directed. We need a church version of Undercover Boss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you're going to the women's ministry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I just think like women do so much emotional labour, but they, they do that in so many situations. Mm. And what women have been doing in the church is caring for themselves without, mm. that, without mm. that help. And I would love to see men learn how to care for women. Mm. Um, and care can't be, care obviously has to be structural, but it also needs to like come from the personal. So mm. I would love to see that. Yeah. I have one. Can I, I know yeah. I'm not here to have opinions, <laughs> but I kind of have one right now. Have so, um, but I think, you know, um, mentoring is really important. And when I was going through Bible college, um, there was the Billy Graham rule. And so it meant that every female student was unable to sit with a male um, lecturer or mentor and be able to receive the same one-on-one -on -one supervision that my male counterparts received. I think that was um, shattered by a theologian called Shane Clifton who's come and spoke at this for me. And the day that he met with me one-on-one, -on -one, I can remember mm. how surprised I was. Mm. And I can remember when he stood up and he decided to shut the door. And, um, you know, I went, but you can't do that. And he looked at me and I went, and he went, why? And I went, because I'm a woman. <laughs> and he said, Tanya, there's a window in the door and I promise you I'm not going to have sex with you. <laughs> and I, I was like, okay. <laughs> but I think, you know, from that moment, he um, was able to show what it was to be a mentor that wasn't someone that, you know, was interested in anything else other than mentoring. And that mm. would be, mm. I would say for every mm. man in the room, if you have a position of power and you are able to mentor a woman, that in and of itself, is a, ch a change, um, something that would make an incredible difference um, and go a long way to women being perceived as competent in the roles that they might want to take up. Did you have something to add, Emma? <laughs> um, it's gone. Okay. Yeah. Can I just note Dave's done it tonight and Jeff's done it tonight yeah, with this, right. with us? Didn't have to be motivated by a man. It's probably like one of the only times that's that only because I, I cried at you in the office room <laughs> in the, the break room <laughs> and so I went alright fine I'll do the panel <laughs> showed emotion yeah yes another question hi um, so you've kind of spoken to this a little bit but um, your discussion kind of reminded me of a story particularly what Kylie was saying about the pipeline into ministry um, I had a friend who was considering Bible college um, and then the next time I saw her I asked her how that was going and she said I thought about it and I realised I'd be facing up to patriarchy every single day and I just couldn't do it. And so, I mean, she's doing amazing stuff in social work instead, um, but I still feel like that was a massive loss and it really broke my heart because she's done so much work with girls specifically and I thought she would be amazing. Um, so, do we have any reflections, I guess, on that? Even before women start, for example, Bible college or studying ministry, do we have any, I guess, ideas about what it would mean to support women before they get to that stage so they can make that decision and know that they will be supported? There was a woman in the States who did her PhD on why women go into the theological education. And her main um, findings from that were a sense of calling from God, um, specific encouragement from men. And it didn't have to be massive, it just had to be you have gifts in this area. Mm. Um, and a sense of need that 
kind of only someone of her particular shape could fill. It can't just be generic need. Mm. We need more people to know Jesus. Right. It actually has to be, here's what you bring to people knowing Jesus. Um, those are the kind of like the three key findings, um, which are different from men. Um, men tend to just assume the world needs them. Mm. And I don't mean that aggressively. I just mean it's, yeah, it's true. Yeah. Um, and they tend to receive much more support much earlier than women do. So they get to be assessed on their potential. Women get mm. assessed on their performance. Um, and so men assume, of course, why wouldn't I go to Bible college? Um, and there are fewer hurdles. Whereas women need to have that encouragement starting far earlier back. But it doesn't have to be extraordinary. It, mm. it can be as simple as someone just saying, you have gifts in this area. Mm. Um, personally, I experienced that recently. I'm also at Bible college at the moment. And one of my lecturers, who's not lecturing me anymore, just came up to me during morning tea and just said, I still remember you from my class. And I thought you did some really great work in that. That, like you would not believe how much I've thought mm. about that <laughs> since. That one little sentence, because every book I read is written by a man and every lecture I have is a man. Um, someone saying you have gifts in this area has been enormously galvanizing for me. Um, and so something like that. But every woman who goes into these environments needs to know that it's going to be hard and it is going yes. to be a fight every yes. day. Definitely. I chose my college based yeah. on which was least mean to me. Yep. And I've sat, last week I sat with a girl who was coming to the realisation she was going to have to unenrol from her, um, her ministry, her theology degree, because she was facing the type of pushback in the classroom where, you know, um, Deborah suddenly was not a leader of all of Israel, just mainly the women. <laughs> um, and there were these, you know, continual rewriting of the narratives in scripture um, to fit the ideology that, sh ideology that she had somehow triggered. And on campus, you know, that's the story. I wore skirts right around Fuller during my PhD. <laughs> Ridiculous, but I'm a woman and I'm here and you can see me, and you can watch me walk across campus in a skirt because it's a reality. But you stay there and you make you know, it possible for the next group of women to go through. What that we might... Uh, go ahead. I can't remember we, we might just about wrap Erica up. that wrote about um, with the wine scene stuff, everybody in the industry knew that it was happening. Everybody <laughs> knew. And I should say this. Yeah. He, only, yeah. he only came came down when we found out. Mm. So, I mean, the same could apply to any power structure. Keep up the pressure. Mm. Write to them. Tell them that you're not going to that college because yeah. of their structures. Tell Get your, your friends pastor. to do the same. Yeah. Call in mm. twice a year. You know, yeah. Keep up the pressure. Yeah. Encourage your, your male friends to keep up the pressure because actually their voice counts for more, sadly. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Sorry, Nate. I, th I think we're just about out of time. Sorry, uh, please, uh, I know there's so many more questions uh, that people have. Um, uh, please keep the conversation going afterwards. Feel free to hang around, uh, have a glass of wine, chat to our panellists, I'm sure. Oh, um, yeah, and the review. Uh, the, uh, so Mark's review <laughs> that uh, Eric has contributed to, Eric, Erica has uh, <laughs> contributed to. There's the confirmation bias. Um, <laughs> It's uh, available uh, for sale for $15 at the back um, uh, there. Um, please uh, grab a flyer on your way out with more information about Peace Talks um, and sign up to the contact list if you haven't already. But most importantly, thank you all for such a wonderful discussion. Uh, it was truly inspiring.
this has certainly been a, a big highlight for me in, for the last few years of Peace Talk. So thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Uh, please uh, join me in thanking them again for such wonderful. <laughs> Feel free to hang around and um, uh, we'll see you next month.